Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 247 for May 6th, 2010. The Multiverse. Security Now is brought to you by GoToTraining. Improve learning, participation, and access to training programs, plus save a bunch with GoToTraining. For a free trial, visit GoToTraining.com. And by Audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash Security Now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about security, privacy, and how computers work. Joining us right now, the man behind the show, the myth, the legend, Mr. Steve. <laughs> You're not a myth. Wait a minute. The myth? The man, the myth, the legend, Steve Gibson uh, of GRC.com. Steve, you know, I should, every once in a while, I should just remind people that you've been doing this for longer than, you know, almost anybody. You started, I think, was it, was it out of college you were doing synthesizers? No, actually, before then, it was high school. High school. You know, yeah, I had my first programming job at age 14 when wow. I was in high school. And you, uh, for the Apple II, you did the Gibson Light Pen, which was very famous at the time. Yep, that was a, that was a prior company we did. Uh, I, I designed the hardware electronics for it. And in fact, one of my favorite moments was I was in Boston at the Boston Apple Fest, which was, you know, the big one of the big annual Apple shows, and Woz came up, and I was demonstrating the light pen with an Apple II up on the little our little booth stage. We had a 20 by 10 booth, and he sort of stood there looking up at the screen, and there, was, there were a couple things that turned out really sort of spectacular about the, 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 the pen. The Apple had the ability to show different different regions of memory. You could, you could do screen switching, which was often used for animation, but it occurred to me that you could use the light pen to trigger the screen switch. And so it was possible to literally like lift the screen up and see what was underneath it, which I used in a CAD program that I had written. And Waz just sort of shook his head and he said, it never ceases to amaze me what you are able to make my machine do, Steve. Oh, isn't that neat? So I was... Yeah. High praise. Yeah, it was neat. High praise. So yeah, I just love computers. And then after that, a uh, little thing called SpinWrite. You know, it's funny. We were talking. Where, where'd my? Oh, here. We were, I was. Uh, I want to do our next gadget uh, warehouse Friday with uh, uh, Dick D. Bartolo. I'm going to do a uh-huh. zip drive, and so somebody sent me some d- zip disks. Look at this, and it reminded me that I met you the first time we worked together was. Uh, if I was talking to Paul Thorat about this, and he said, "Oh, you remember that click, and they would die?" I said, "Yes, the click of death." And guess uh, who told me about the click of death? Yep. Steve Gibson. In fact, you wrote a program called Tip Trouble in Paradise. Well, what happened? Yes, what happened was Spinrite Five was the first version which would run on a much wider array of drives, more than just strict, you know, motherboard-mounted hard drives. And people began writing in saying, "Hey, Spinrite just solved our click death problem." And I said, "You're what?" And 
So that sort of got me into the whole iOmega stuff. And it, it turned out that what was happening with the iOmega drives was really different from what was going on with hard drives. And in fact, I decided running Spinrite really wasn't what you wanted to do. So, I mean, it, because it was the what was happening on the iOmega drives was an actual drive failure. It was it was the drive no longer writing correctly. So running Spinrite on a drive which is fundamentally broken can do more damage than good in the case of, of these zip drives. So I created Trouble in Paradise tip in order to give people a free diagnostic utility to to tell them what the condition of their zip drives was. And then only after you um, you, got, you got, you know, tip gave you a clean bill of health, then you could use Spinrite to, to, to make things better. So, yeah, that was when you and I, I came up to San Francisco and hung out with, uh, uh, in, you know, in the basement-looking tech TV uh, set. And, uh, and <laughs> there and, was, it was with, it was Kate, it was Kate, I think. It was yep. before Patrick. Kate Patel so was the first there. year, so that was, uh, that would have been uh, 99 or 98. And in fact, my other favorite fun story is that she was the one who discovered Shields Up. That's I right. Have, I have the video of it still where, like, she had her own little segment of the show that she would show you something. And so you were just sort of there, you know, and you showed up. And, and she said, oh, and I found this really amazing site that checks your Internet security. It's called Shields Up. <laughs> and so she goes to GRC.com and, and you said, she said, yeah, Steve Gibson did it. And, and you were sort of like, you know, distracted or, you know, because you're like, you're I'm probably getting ready for the next segment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you said, "Wait, who?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I read you religiously in Infoworld. You did. Was it Infoworld? Mm -hmm. You did the best column, which I really and I I I sorely miss. It was one of the because it's you know most of the time people writing in tech magazines, the late lamented tech magazines, mm -hmm. uh, were journalists first, technologists second, and you were it was vice versa. So you had the, the it was they were great columns because they were so smart and well informed, just like the show, and I just loved it. And I was very sad. I know you you retired, you gave it up. Well, eight years of a weekly column, <laughs> and that was, was it that enough. long. That's a long time. Eight years. What was the yeah. name of the column? It's called Tech Talk. That's right. Yeah. I originally named it Behind the Screens, uh, which I liked, uh, but CompuServe had a trademark on that for one of their own columns because there was a CompuServe magazine right. at the time. So they, they, they said to InfoWorld, uh, we'd like you to change the name. So, so, so InfoWorld said, okay, Gibson, come up with something else. I said, okay, Tech Talk. No, they're <laughs> not, not very inspired, but still. And uh, yeah, in fact, I was really, there, there was a, the gossip columnist, Robert X. Cringely, yeah. was, was the, uh, was, before I came along, the most popular item that they had in the magazine. And after a couple of years, we were neck and neck. Sometimes, you know, they, they, they would do uh, reader surveys and sometimes I would come out first, sometimes cringely would. And uh, people often said that they turned to my column first and then went to the front page because, you know, they wanted to see what was going on. So it was great. I, it really improved my writing dramatically, too. Well, you know, that, the eight years of that discipline. Sure, sure. A big just difference. doing it, yeah. And you're a very good writer. It was very, it was always very clear and concise, and but and and very insightful. But anyway, I bring that up just to say this guy is not a newbie. <laughs> he been around. GRC.com is the website. You can still get Spinrite. It still is the you know some some versions later the hard drive maintenance utility. 
but for the last 246 episodes, now 247, we have been talking about security and privacy uh, and a podcast that really has ended up being, I think, for a lot of people, kind of a must-listen-to introduction to technology, to how things work, uh, how crypto works, you know, uh, all of this stuff. And we've been doing a series kind of off and on that I just love on the fundamentals of computing. We're going to continue that series today. Yep. Um, the I called this one the multiverse, and I've been promising it for a number of weeks, but we've had some other things which have come up in the meantime that were that sort of preempted this. We're going to talk about multi-threading, multitasking, multi-processing, multi-core, uh, and also hyper-threading. doesn't quite fit in with the multi, but it's, it's related. And it, it exactly builds on everything of the foundation that we've laid in the prior um, episodes about the fundamentals of computing technology. Um, we left off a couple of weeks ago talking about hardware interrupts and how hardware interrupts we're able to to be used to great advantage to manage the time spent in a computer. And with everything that we've covered so far, we can now take the next step and talk about basically how computers are able to do so much seemingly all at the same time. The multiverse. Mm-hmm. I love the name because, of course, it's a play on uh, uh-huh. Snow Crash. <laughs> The yep. Neil Stevenson novel, right? Where- and also, it, the, it's the term that um, the uh, Serenity uh, uses. Uh, they talk about the multiverse. The multiverse. Yeah, yeah. And, and in Snow Crash, it's the virtual reality world that you can go into and live in. And it really is, you know, it's not, we're not talking second life here. I mean, it really is real because it's total virtual reality. I don't know what it is in Serenity, but uh, um, I always, I keep, I hope that they have a multiverse before I pass on. Maybe somebody listening to this I show. I don't think we're, e- we're even going to have aliens by the time oh, we, we and I man. are gone. Bummer. <laughs> we might. You never know. That could happen at any time. You saw what I... Stephen Hawking said. No. Oh, he was. Uh, it was a. It's a show he's doing. A BBC show or something he's doing. He said, "You know, we really oughtn't to talk to them. <laughs> if if we find aliens, don't say anything, because it's probable that they've been in a ship." They've taken a very, very long time to get here. And when they get here, what are they going to need? Resources. We are just in the way. Mm. So he says, don't talk to aliens. What a cheery thought. Yeah. So maybe yeah. maybe let's hope those aliens don't show up. All right. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll talk about the multiverse in just a bit. We also have some security news to uh, address, uh, some addenda as well. Before we go into that, let me just quickly mention go to training. What do you say? Yep, and then we'll we'll move on. Go to training is from Citrix, our great sponsor. We we have such great sponsors for this show. Going going back to, in fact, the first year of the show, this was the first show ever to have advertising on the Twit Network. People, uh, I I think, have such respect for Steve and for you as a listener to Steve that that, that frankly they want to to talk to you. So let me go to training. Wants to talk particularly to trainers, corporate trainers, but. It could be anybody in an IT department who has to support corporate trainers or worse, somebody who has to take corporate training and has suffered through it, like me, they've got a better way. Based on that great backbone, the remote access backbone that's in GoToMyPC and, and GoToMeeting, GoToTraining is a web-based tool that lets up to 200 people connect to a training session. They're at their desktop, the trainer, you're the trainer, it could be at your desktop. In fact, you could have trainers all over the world because you can pass off control from one to the other. You could do it in real time, which is great because there's all these interactivity features. Of course, there's chat, but there's real-time testing, polling, 
quizzing, uh, feedback, that kind of thing. But you can also record your session. So 200 people live, but you can record that session, and now your training is available anytime, anywhere people want to go through it. You can have your own curriculum library. Upload any document of any file type, uh, links, whatever you need to this curriculum library for that training. Your trainees can check it out and read it before, during, or after the training. You can create and customize tests. You could send email from... The, there's a built-in email system. And I thought about that. I so why do they do that? And then I realized, so you could send a note saying, where are you? <laughs> we are training now. Come on. Uh, it is It is just like a go-to-meeting in the sense that you can present any application, any document. They're seeing your screen. So anything you could do on your computer will now be seen by your trainees in addition to the reporting systems and the integrated testing and everything that they've got going. This is spectacular. I want you to try it free right now. You can go to gototraining.com. The website is gototraining.com. Try it absolutely free for 30 days. No obligation whatsoever. They, they This is new. It's a, It's about a month old. I believe we're the first people to talk about it ever. Uh, and so they've really put, put this in our hands. They're giving us a chance to show it to you before anybody else. So I would really like you to take advantage of this opportunity and go to gototraining.com, G-O-T-O training.com, and try it free for 30 days. I think you'll, I think you'll be impressed. And if you're a, an IT professional with a training team, or maybe you've had to go to a corporate training, there are better ways <laughs> Maybe you want to tell your local trainer. <laughs> Go to training.com. Please do me a favor. Go to training.com. There's the URL. Give it a shot, and I think you'll uh, I think you'll really appreciate it. All right, Steve Gibson, do you want to do, before we uh, get into the the multiverse, do you want to do some uh, security news? Oh, yes. We have a our pretty much our regular lineup Usual. of people, <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. Um, there is a, for those five people who are using Opera, I wanted to let them know uh, a high, what was regarded as a highly critical remote code execution vulnerability. Um, the current version of Opera, as of the date of this podcast, is 10.53. Anyone using anything previous uh, really should update soon. It's not that there's likely to be a, a great scattering of exploits against this because, as we know, uh, Opera has a relatively small market share. They're, they're stronger over in the portable side, I think, than they are on the, on the PC side. Um, but there's a, uh, it's been discovered that in versions prior to 10.53, there's an exploit which is pretty serious that allows JavaScript running on a web page to use the, the very common document write function to continuously write until it overwrites in improperly initialized memory, okay. at which point it's able to run whatever code the bad guys want. So it's basically the idea would be you go to a website with JavaScript enabled, which is, of course, the default, and if you were using Opera and the site was specifically targeted to this exploit, you could get something malicious installed on your machine, which unfortunately is happening to people more and more. The reason is this related to now wasn't there a bug a, a zero day exploit in Opera? Is this the same one, or is this a, when it first the new version came out? Mm, this is another one. 
I think this is another one. Wait, this is wait. different than the than the zero day we had not long ago. Right. And the reason it's a concern for Opera users, if, for example, your corporation had standardized on Opera and it was known that all the employees, for example, in a company were Opera users and somebody were were targeting your company, then they could... They could send a page to you, which is going to take any of, of the company's employees to a malicious page and, and execute this. It's not it's unlikely with the market share that Opera has that there would just be lots of pages out there right. that are using this exploit because they, they would expect, you know, probably no one to ever to, to ever happen upon that site. So but but for targeted attacks and what we're seeing increasingly in the in the threat model on the Internet is attack targeting. Um, keeping really up to date is becoming increasingly important. And once again, we're at, just wanted to remind our listeners because the, the problem with the, the executable content in PDF files with Adobe Reader is continuing to escalate while Adobe sits around and does nothing about it. They are, they're still deciding whether they want to do anything about it. Me- meanwhile, there are... They're too busy uh, yelling at Steve Jobs to uh, fix yeah, their product. And, and trying to get him in trouble with the State Department. Or yeah. I guess they're, 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 they're... Clearly, they're behind this ridiculous antitrust uh, investigation, yeah. which is, you know, going to be launched into Apple's decision not to allow the third-party development tools to, to be used. Um, what's happened is there's now a a Windows rootkit worm variant known by two names as as Aurax, A-U-R-A-A-X, and also Emold, which is using this now pretty well-known ability for PDFs to execute content. Uh, we've talked about it several weeks ago. Um, I wanted to remind all of our listeners, if you had intended to disable this feature in in Acrobat Reader um, and Adobe Reader, but forgot to, it would be a good time now not to forget. Um, To do so is simple. You just open any PDF file. That'll get the reader going. And then under the edit menu, down at the bottom is preferences. That'll bring up the preferences dialog. Then you'll see an alphabetical list of of stuff over on the left-hand column, sort of categories, down at the very bottom, near the bottom, is Trust Manager. Select that, and then there's a checkbox. The first one over on the right-hand panel, which reads, uh, Allow opening of non-PDF file attachments. That you want to turn off. If you turn that off, then you're safe. Um, it's be- This is being used, basically, there's been a huge escalation in in the use of this exploit because Adobe continues to do nothing. And they're saying, well, we may address it in our next quarterly update. Because remember, Adobe has adopted the four times a year update policy, even though they haven't been following it because they've had so many problems with uh, security lately. So I just wanted to remind users once again, if they had intended to get around to turning that off, uh, now would be a real good time to do it. Um, I understand people may be away from their computers while they're listening to the podcast and 
um, had, you know, might want to do this, but forget to do so. So there's a little nudge because this is looking like it's catching more and more people. Mm. Uh, we talked about what have, what has been called in the security community, Microsoft's placebo patch last week, which was, uh, released initially on the second Tuesday of, of the month. And, um, that is of April, um, and has now been re-released. So, uh, it was something that affected only Windows 2000 running the media services service. So not affecting lots of people. But if you did notice that if you're running Windows 2000 and Microsoft was saying, Hey, we have a little update for you. Uh, that's what that was. They have re-released it and fixed it this time. So it's no longer the placebo patch. It actually does patch the problem. Um, after they initially misfired on that. And just in a little bit of security news, I thought it was sort of sad to read that the U.S. Treasury Department's websites are installing malware. Oh, jeez. Just their in time visit- for your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> your tax dollars hard at work. At work. <laughs> installing malware in visitors' computers because they're hosted by Network Solutions. What? Why is it? First of all, why are they being hosted by Network Solutions? Would be I one know. question. I know. Uh, unfortunately, doesn't the government have its own servers? They're they're apparently these sites at the U.S. Treasury Department fall within a level of security clearance, right? Because we it use does, them <laughs> exactly yeah. because it's just for the public. It's just for the public. So it, yes, exactly. Okay. Which doesn't which allows them to be outsourced. So they're hosted on Network Solutions systems. And you'll remember from last week that Network Solutions, unfortunately, was the focus of an attack which got into and infected a whole raft of their sites. So it turns out the U.S. Treasury Department is among them. And they, and so what happened is the, the, the websites had an iframe added which caused web browsers that visited the U.S. Treasury Department sites to go get malicious content from another site whose registration is the same as where the malware was coming from when the previous round of network solution sites were hacked. Thus, we believe it's the same bad guys who have now managed to infect the web pages of the U.S. Treasury Department. Oh, interesting. So hmm. that's not good. No. 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 I would um, say not good. Not, <laughs> not a good thing. Um, in errata... You're not vulnerable. Just to upset, update this, uh, just to re- reassure people, you're not vulnerable unless you haven't patched Windows, right? Mm, yes. It must be that it's... you. It's probably using an existing I exploit. Didn't run across what it was that they were doing, but as right. is typically the case, I'm sure this is not a zero-day exploit. Right. Yes. So it's not something unknown to the world... Uh, and as long as you're completely patched, you're fine. This is taking, as you say, good. I'm glad you brought that up, Leo. It's taking advantage of almost certainly known exploits of various sorts. And typically, the, 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 the content you get will try five or six or seven different things, hoping to, you know, catch you out and, and find one that your machine has That's pretty typical, patched. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. I'm on my ball. Why? Oh. Uh, Okay. Um, I'm nervous now. Uh, <laughs> I know what it is, though. <laughs> uh, I, 
I have somewhat <laughs> reluctantly moved into the 21st century, Leo. You know, you're uh, going to disappoint a lot of people with this. Yeah, I probably am. I, I probably am. Uh, I have two Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> now, why, just out of curiosity, did you, did you do this? Well, okay, I first created an account with not with the not very inspired but hopefully memorable name of Gibson Research. Yeah. Uh, so if you just you know Twitter dot com slash Gibson Research uh, will I guess take you to my page. It does. I'm looking at it right now. Now uh, you got 57 followers. That's good. Okay. Do you plan to follow anybody? <laughs> or are you just going to? Sure. I I don't think I'll follow anyone there. Um, okay. My my intention is. As I understand it, this will allow me to easily post notices yes. of what's going on with GRC. I think that's with a good the, idea. We use that for Twit. We have a Twit account. And that's exactly what we do. Right. And, you know, I've been talking about CryptoLink and uh, getting myself ready to get serious about starting it. So this is part of that. I thought it would be a good way for me to easily just sort of trickle out progress reports on what I'm working on, what's going on, new versions are available, um, you know, what I'm doing, in general, what Gibson Research is doing. Now, I then decided that maybe I ought to have a different account for, I don't know, the reason most people use Twitter, I guess. Like, you know, oh, look, I found some lint in my navel. Um, (laughs) Now, I didn't want to clutter up the Gibson Research account with that. So the second account, my personal Twitter account, is Agile Synapse. All right. A-G-I-L-E-S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. So, uh, so I've created both of those. One, you know, for people who don't care about lint navel, or navel lint, rather, um, you can just follow Gibson Research, and I will keep that one re- uh, relative to what GRC and I am doing. Or if you do wonder about, you know, the, 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 you know, the cappuccinos at Starbucks and lattes and I guess, I, I mean, I'm very hesitant about this. I don't know why anyone would care, but that seems to be what people do these days. So Agile Synapse is where I will post sort of what's going on in my life and uh, at the Gibson Research Twitter account, what's going on with Gibson Research as it bears directly on the the sort of the professional side so good that makes sense i'm gonna i just followed them both steve i don't know what that means but i'm glad leo <laughs> you better start learning the lingo steve <laughs> come on now dude you're gonna be part of the modern world you gotta learn the lingo so here's the deal you you basically the gibson research account is a broadcast account which we have twit and twit live i i don't use it to follow stuff i just people follow it to find out what's on twit live like we tweet when the show starts stuff like that or that kind of thing or when we, the twit account we use to update them on you know new stuff happening in twit and so forth and then i have a leo laporte account and that one i use both to talk about stuff but also to read and i think this is something you got to consider is you follow people who are saying interesting things it doesn't have to be a thousand people probably shouldn't even be more than a hundred people but that way when you go to twitter you'll get some stuff other than and it's kind of considered, I don't know, polite to follow some people. You don't okay. have to. You don't so, have to. But stuff's not being pushed on me, right? Like no. so, I so so I go to I, I I deliberately go to somewhere 
and then I see you go to twitter.com with yeah. your account agile synapse which is your personal account right. and then whoever you followed will 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 be down the page oh okay so that way if you follow me or some other interesting people um you know we're saying interesting things and I think there're probably quite a few people on twitter that you'd be interested in um then uh, you know programmers or tech pundits you know i mean people that and you're and, your and friends so so and somehow the way this works is time is suspended during the time that you're doing this so there's you get like extra time in the day it doesn't count no. against your 24 hours <laughs> no that's only that's the old italian proverb nobody ages when eating oh <laughs> and that's true <laughs> but not twittering you age considerably while twittering no you don't have to you don't have to go there but it, it you know if you know, if you just followed breaking news from cnn or something like that then when something is happening it's kind of you can go there and see what's going on. I mean, I find it very useful. You know, there's traffic reports or well, it sure is popular. Whatever it is, whatever it I mean, is, this whole Twitter thing. So, well, you know just, what? Get ready because uh, I'm going to tweet that you have started a Twitter account, and uh, well, that's cool. that will give you probably a considerable number of <laughs> followers. We'll, we'll find out whether anyone we'll cares. See what I happens? Guess. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, you got you've got twenty three followers in your personal. Well, let me actually. I should refresh because now that we've mentioned it, maybe you've got maybe you've got more. Let's see if people ran out. Yeah, one hundred seventy five followers. So you want you just gained one hundred fifty followers just in the last thirty seconds. Wow, that's those are people listening to you, Steve, who want to know what are, you think. These are the naval lint people. Steve, you're going to have to stop doing that. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna alienate. Now I'm gonna have to think of something useful to say. <laughs> yeah, you know, once once a day, it's a nice little discipline. You get up in the morning. Think of it as a 140 character column. Remember when you were doing that column? Yeah. See, that's just not enough space, Leo. That's well, you know, it can link back. It could link this back. This is why to stuff. I use like R and U as single letters instead <laughs> of like actually spelling out words. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. But, uh, but this week alone, you sent me really be you bad. sent me links to two very interesting articles this week alone. True. From now on, just tweet them. You can send links. Oh sure. Oh, you just hey, say, hey, here's an interesting article about you know vitamin D. Paste the link in, and you're done. And that's of great value, I think. Mm. See. Okay. See. Well, yeah. And so, and the uh, the link's got to be less than 140 characters, the, though, right? No, well, the, people use link shorteners. In fact, Twitter has a built-in link shortener. You'll find most people don't use the Twitter web page. They will use, I'll, I'll recommend Brizzly, B-R-I-Z-Z-L-Y dot com. You log in there instead of your Twitter page, and it has built-in shortening. It'll, you know, and Twitter says how many characters you've gone. You'll see. It's very, it's very easy to do. Brizzly is a good, uh, is a good page. Well, I'll, I'll think of something fun to do. Oh, I think you could be very valuable on Twitter. <laughs> I can't wait to see what Agile Synapse has uh, to say. We'll see what Agile Synapse is up to. I'm, I'm okay. You ready? I'm pressing the tweet button. I have to actually count these because I, I, I go through from Google Buzz. Maybe I should just. How do many this people are following you, Leo? One hundred eighty-five thousand. Oh goodness! <laughs> <laughs> You'll catch up. And Dvorak. Uh, I think thirty or forty thousand. Okay, and Perillo? Uh He may have millions for all I know. You know, uh, for a while Twitter was pub, you know promoting people, and the people who Twitter promoted are in the millions. You know, because they when you first signed up for Twitter, it would say, "Oh, you should follow whoever." You know, Ashton. This Kutcher. whole thing's a couple of years old, right? Believe it or not, it's since two thousand seven. Wow, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, technically, it's four years old because they launched in April two thousand six, but nobody used it then. It really didn't start taking off till 2007. 
So I am now, okay, I'm going to say hell has frozen over. Steve Gibson is on Twitter, and I'm putting the two things in there. And when you do that, see, it shows you the count. And, oh, here's another little tip for you, Steve. If you're giving somebody's Twitter account, you proceed it with the at sign. And then once you tweet that, somebody can click it and go right to your account. So now you see it's a link. At Gibson Research is a link. And it shows you, shows you there. And people can follow you, you see. Wow. I'm going to have to play this podcast back, Leo, so I can... <laughs> so I can I'm teaching so Steve I can watch something. All, this. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but that's good. I'm glad. Any other, any, any other updates for us? Oh, my goodness. Um, I did want to mention, I, I listened to you and Paul uh, doing the Dear This Week in Google, talking about patent stuff. Yes. And one of the things that I've been annoyed by, first of all, I'm delighted that HP purchased Palm. Really? It, it me- oh, yeah. It saves well, them, right? As, exactly, for that reason. And it means that HP's tablets will not be limited to Windows. Clearly, Palm's WebOS is oriented toward being a large tablet. Right. And so we're going to have Apple-based tablets based on the iPhone OS. We will have um, Droid-based tablets. We'll have WebOS-based pa- tablets. And you probably have seen that BlackBerry is apparently on the way to doing one. Oh, I didn't see that. So, yeah, there was, um, I saw some pictures of a BlackBerry tablet. So, you know, and, but on the patent side, one of the things that has, that's frustrated me is, for example, well, the companies that have gotten in early have all laid down various domains of intellectual property. And unfortunately, they're competing with each other. And being largely unwilling to share this stuff because they regard their various technologies as competitive edges. For example, I love that on my BlackBerry, I can hold a key down and it will it'll initially type in lowercase. But then I'm able, to, if I hold it down, it switches to uppercase. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have that on the iPad? But... I can't. The iPad can't have it because BlackBerry patented that. And so so a nice feature like that is sadly only available on, you know, like on whatever platforms developer came along and created that idea first. Now, I don't do you know about the thing the sliding your finger off of the shift key on the iPad? Uh, oh, you mean? Um, well, I know that you could slide, slide like if you if you press the peri- the period the uh, period you slide up or you slide on the exclamation. For instance, apostrophe is not on the main keyboard, and you you need it all the time. So if you if you tap the exclamation mark and slide it up, you get an apostrophe. Is oh, that what you mean? That's one I didn't know about. That's really useful because well, you need apostrophe, yeah, right? I, I I agree. And for example, you know, notice that the Apple keyboard does not change the case of the letters, but but the palm keyboard does. Oh, that's is. Oh, you're right. They should. They should, and they, but they can't because Palm patent. got that. See, that's stupid. It's well. Excuse me. What, yes, it is, and it's really frustrating. I mean, the, the the problem is, the 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 U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is now giving patents out with reckless abandon yeah, for trivial applications or even applications for, with prior art. Frankly, yes, and and so so what what's what's happening is. 
where we, 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 the consumer is now losing right. because no one manufacturer is able to take a bunch of good ideas and put them together in one platform. If you want upper and lower case, to display on your on-screen keyboard, you got to go to Palm. If you want to be able to hold a button down and have it turn into capitalization, you got to go to BlackBerry. If and 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 so on. And it's it really is the the, the case that this is no longer benefiting us. And it, I mean, for 17 years, we have to wait 17 years for these patents to expire, mm. and then they they the, these ideas go into the public domain. I so. agree. It's a real problem. And it's in, uh, you know, originally the idea of the patent system was to encourage innovation, to reward innovators. At this point, it's the exact opposite. Yep, exactly. And it's it's basically just giving people a license to sue each other. Yeah. Is, is what it boils down to. Yeah. I did want to mention that um, one of my one of the things I'm very excited about is there is a very nice traditional NNTP which is the original um, uh, Internet Network News Transfer Protocol. Usenet. Usenet. Uh, there is a reader called NewsTap, which is the only one I could find for the iPhone. Yeah. I wrote to its developer about three weeks ago and said, hey, is there any chance that you will do one or upgrade this one for the iPad? Oh, that would be so good. And, Leo, it's in beta, and it Hallelujah. is spectacular. Uh, Alexander Strauss, I think, or Klaus is his name. And he wrote back two days ago and he said, hey, you asked me about a, uh, a, a newsreader for the iPad. He said, it's in beta. Um, if you're interested, I can, I'll send you the details. He's looking for a few beta testers, not our whole listenership's <laughs> worth. I'd be glad to. I, I, I you know, this, the thing that I'm finding I do much more of, uh, with the iPad is reading, uh, you know, RSS feeds, reading website. I mean, it's become a great way to content keep up the content. Yeah. Yes. And I'd love to add news groups to that list. I, you know, I kind of yeah. gave up on news groups. It's been a long time. Well, GRC has, an, you know, active news groups. And in fact, I, I depend upon them for the, to, for, to be interactive when I'm developing software. While I was writing the DNS benchmark last summer, I mean, I, the work I was doing was so hugely accelerated by the fact that I, I had a real a bunch of guys that were hanging around all over the planet testing versions that I would release, and in some cases with with platforms I didn't have. Like you know, we got it running completely under um, uh, Linux with Wine, and I, you know, I didn't have to install Linux and Wine in order to make it go. Actually, they ended up producing a um, uh, an image that I was able to run under VMware for for a couple things where I really did need to see what they were talking about myself. But it's just hugely leveraging. So I'm just very excited that I'll be have, have access to GRC's news groups and, you know, all, all the other news groups on the net for that, uh, uh, for, <laughs> for that matter. How do, I um, how do I follow the GRC news group? Is it part of the regular news group download on something? I use... Uh is it Super News? I can't remember which news Usenet is. I used to use Super News too. No, it, well, we have our own server, so I'll have to point do, it to your server. We do not propagate. Okay, um, it's been it's been an issue from time to time. Google started picking. You know, when when, when Google Groups happened, right. uh, there was some leakage from it, which we plugged. We just want to keep it sort of a a, a separate piece of the net. You know, sort of off to itself to to limit the amount of exposure. Also, if we if we propagate it outwards, 
people would see the the postings, reply to them, but they would never come back to us. So so these are not public groups, although the new the, the new server is just news.grc.com. Okay. So it's news.grc.com. Does NewsTap let you follow multiple news servers? Yes. Oh, wonderful. I can't so wait. You can subscribe to multiple uh, servers. It'll pull different groups from each of them and pull them together. And he's done. Oh, I mean, he's got a, a view for the thread, which is just gr- graphical and beautiful, where you're able to slide around within this tree of uh, this tree view and tap on articles and then read them in the pane below i mean it's just this is like this is, doesn't look like a first shot this is yeah. I mean, it's, it's already you know beautifully polished does he support instapaper do you know about instapaper i do and i have it and i'm trying to think what does something i ran across a lot of day. a lot of things i mean Newsrack, which i use does a lot of uh, i mean to me a reader a news reader or a news group reader uh, it's really nice if it does for a couple of reasons one is there's a great instapaper application on the ipad instapaper allows you to say oh save that i want to read that later save that i want to read that right. later and put it in instapaper and instapaper will send you an email or to your kindle with your uh, agglomerated instapaper stories so you could actually get it on the kindle too which is oh, you didn't know that very nice. yeah go 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 create an instapaper account it's free but if you create an account uh, then you can say send me a weekly or daily or digest of the instapapers and then you have it on the kindle which i love but i used instapaper a lot because i'm always in a hurry i never have a chance to you know read these articles so i just save them i put them aside in instapaper and then i have right. i have access to them i will ask um be a nice about- thing for him to do yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then finally, we have a reader, uh, I mean, a, a, a listener, uh, nice little testimonial. In fact, his name is Lance, and he's in Concord. Didn't say where, but maybe Massachusetts um, or maybe California. Uh, he says, or any of the other Concords that I'm sure must be uh, dotted around the country. He just said, another testimonial for your show. He said, my sister and I don't talk much, so I was surprised when she and her engineer husband called me, they know I'm a computer nut, and they had already tried everything they could think of, including running a different data re- recovery product, although they didn't rec- recall its name. They had neglected to back up their PC for over three years. Oh, good Lord. Okay, <laughs> at this point, I really wanted to tease them. Yeah. He's an engineer for crying out yeah. loud. And now the drive wouldn't boot. I sent them your program, and they promised to purchase it if it saved their PC, which I think is entirely reasonable. Needless to say, Spinrite used its necromantic powers <laughs> to raise their drive from the dead, saving their pictures from the last four Halloweens. I guess that's more on the necromantic theme. From the last four Halloweens, as well as all the data on the drive, while I know they will buy the product, I still doubt they'll back up their PC. <laughs> thank you for the great podcast and the great product. Isn't and thank nice? you, Lance, for yeah. your note. Hey, before we get to uh, the uh, metaverse, I'm no, sorry, the multiverse. Um, oh, yeah, I was thinking metaverse, that's the name in Snow Crash. Multiverse, uh-huh. you're right, it's from Serenity, now that, yep. I, now that I mention that. Uh, I would like to mention uh, Audible.com, if you don't mind. Audible is our sponsor and a great group of folks. There couldn't be a greater group of folks. You can get a free book from Audible if you want to try audiobooks. Now, I figure since you're listening to this, you're already kind of inclined to listening. 
uh, audio books just bring it all home to you. You know, I know we all would like to do more reading. There's professional stuff we'd like to read. There's novels we'd like to read. Science fiction we've thought about reading and maybe going back to a classic. Audible makes it possible because whenever you're in your car, you're at the gym, all these times that you, you know, you're just kind of stuck there, uh, you can listen to great books. Audible.com has 75,000 titles. They play on 500 different personal portable players like the iPod, the Zune, the Kindle, the many GPS players, of course, your iPad and your iPhone. So I'm going to suggest you give them a try. Absolutely free. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You'll sign up for the gold account. That's a book a month. It's kind of the minimum in my opinion. I, I do a two book a month subscription, but uh, your first one's free. You get 30 days, you know, free to try it. You can cancel it anytime, owe them nothing, keep the book. So this is a great way to try a book for free. I'm going to recommend, since we're talking about the fundamentals of computing, a book I read many moons ago that is just fantastic, Dealers of Lightning, Xerox Park and the Dawn of the Computer Age. Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, in the 70s and 80s was where things like the windowing operating systems were invented, GUIs, Menus. Mice. Actually, you know, I think I think uh, Doug was at SRI. I always say mice. At I think Sutherland. Oh, you're right. He, he was, was at SRI. SRI. Yeah. Yep. But, I mean, the mouse was first put into use. Uh, Alan Kay was at Xerox Park when he really kind of integrated the mouse into the Xerox Star system. So you're right in that sense. In fact, it was Steve Jobs who went to Xerox Park and said, hmm, mm, here's hmm, the future. We should really be doing this at Apple. What's my girlfriend's name? Hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Dealers of Lightning, Xerox Park and the Dawn of the Computer Age. I do believe that Steve Jobs uh, incident the, visiting a park is in this book. It's really a great book. Fascinating. Classic. But they have a lot of great books uh, from uh, in every area. You know, I wonder if they have Stephen uh, Levy's Hackers, because that was an incredible book. Um, also, another great... Oh, they have his iPod book, The Perfect Thing, How the iPod Shuffles Commerce Culture and Coolness. I remember reading that. It was fantastic. Uh, just, you know, this is what's great about Audible. It is a, a bookstore of great audio entertainment. Now, it's not, you know, some dry voice reading this either, by the way. They, they hire really good readers, most of the time Broadway actors. So they bring these books alive, and that's wonderful, too. If you're a, a fan of the True Blood show on HBO, which is coming back in a couple of weeks, there is a new Sookie Stackhouse novel called Dead in the Family. These are the novels that True Blood's based on. So there's mystery, there's science fiction, there's business information, anything that you would want to read but just don't have time to. Give it a try. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now we thank him so much for their support of the security now program let us visit my friends the and multiverse I, I do love true blood by the way do you isn't that a great oh, show it's fantastic coming it's back just, i love it when when someone takes a, a an existing genre and just completely remodels it and comes up with a, a completely different take. yes yes i agree i agree yeah yeah it's 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 not twilight <laughs> and it's not bram stoker it's a new way of looking at vampires <laughs> <laughs> so um the multiverse this is part of our basics of computing right yes um we've we discussed two episodes ago the concept of a stack which is one of the fundamental core principles that underlies all current 
computing. I mean, you, I, there just isn't anything you could replace it with. And, and, you know, visually, just to remind our listeners, you can sort of model it on the stack of dishes in a cafeteria where there's like it's spring-loaded. The idea being if you, if you were to place dishes on this stack, they sort of are absorbed by it. That is, they go down into this well and as you remove them, you naturally get them in the reverse order that you put them on. So the way the computer uses this, say that you had four registers and you you needed to put their you needed to save them somewhere safe while you were doing something else with them, and then later you wanted to restore them. Well, you could simply say, Push register one on the, the the contents of register one on the stack. Push the contents of register two on the stack. The contents of register three on the stack. The contents of register four on the stack. And you don't have to worry about where the contents went. The, the this this abstraction this this cool idea of a stack where it's a region of memory with its own pointer, the stack pointer, which automatically advances. To always be pointing at the top of the stack. Then you, in, in our example, you do anything you want to with these four registers, not worrying about disturbing their contents because you've saved them on the stack as, as, the, as the jargon goes. And then when you're done, you would, the, the, where pushing something is the term for putting it on the stack, popping it is the term for removing it from the stack. So you would pop the stack into the contents of register four, pop the stack into the contents of register three, pop the stack into the contents of register two, pop the stack into the contents of register one. That is in the reverse order. So just as the plates would go down and come off in the reverse order, so does the contents of the stack. And the point is that this gives sort of a a, a place that as long as you always back out of what you're doing in the reverse sequence that you went in, the stack is your friend. It always provides you what you're expecting. And so that's, a, that's one fundamental principle. The second we talked about in the last episode, which was hardware interrupts. The idea being that if you wanted to do a couple things at once, if you wanted, for example, if your software program wanted to be Printing, well, a printer operates vastly slower than the code running in the computer. And that means the printer can, can uh, at some level, only accept one character at a time. Say that it was like an old-style teletype where you're going, ching, 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 you know, 10 characters per second, typing them out on a yellowish kind of roll of paper. Um, you don't want to sit around in your program waiting for the teletype to say, oh, I finally got through printing the A. Now I'm ready for the next character, whatever it is. Because that would require that your program could do nothing else at the same time. It would just have to sit there watching the status of the teletype until it's ready to accept the next character. So this notion of hardware interrupts was generated where you could, you could have the hardware interrupt your program, which is off doing something else and that interrupt 
what was called an interrupt service routine, which services the hardware interrupt, it would yank control away from your program. Just right in between the execution of any two instructions. You would never know when it was going to happen. In fact, that program running in the foreground, it would sort of even be unaware that anything had happened. Because in between successive instructions, control would get yanked away from it by the hardware interrupt, which would save the registers, whatever they happened to have in them at the time, which would then free up those registers for its own use to, for example, get the next character in an I.O. buffer and and hand it to the teletype and start that being printed, then it would restore the previous interrupted state of the machine and jump right back to the instruction that was about to be executed in the normal main foreground process. So, so hardware interrupts were the beginning of allowing us to do multiple things at once. Well, the next evolution of that is when we said, wait a minute, we actually do want to do more things with a computer at once, not just printing in the background, but what about time sharing? What about having multiple users who are all able to use the same computer. And, of course, time-sharing was a big innovation that we saw in the early 70s because these computers were many tens of thousands of dollars. And it became clear that, well, we've got this hardware which is much faster than a single user. I mean, even someone, you know, Bill Gates, you know, in 1973, you know, at Harvard using the teletype on one of these early machines, you know, he was typing relatively slowly. And I mean, because you couldn't type fast on those machines. You could only input things at 10 characters per second, no matter how fast a typist you were. And so what they realized was, wait a minute, you know, the computer is sitting around waiting for the next character to be typed in. We could have 10 teletypes connected to this computer and each user would feel like they had the computer to themselves. The question was, how do you share a machine among multiple users? How do you do time sharing? And what they realized was, we'll have hardware interrupts generated by a timer. And that was just that little change. That was a massive innovation. Because now what this meant was that part of the hardware, part of the fundamental hardware of the computer would be some piece of hardware, a, a, a little timer chip or a, a divider, which was dividing down the frequency of the main clock crystal down into something like maybe 100 hertz. Or maybe it, was, it used the AC line. It actually used the AC current, you know, which is 60 cycles in the U.S., 50 cycles in, in, in Europe. And every time the AC waveform crossed through zero, which would be 120 times a second or 100 times a second, that could generate a hardware interrupt. And the idea was that, that 
software, you, you could essentially have five programs, say, all loaded into memory at the same time. And then you'd have a supervisor. And here we begin to get the concept of an operating system. At that point, we'd have a supervisor, which would be supervising the execution of more than one program at once. Well, you needed some way to get control, to, to sort of yank control back from any one of these programs back to the supervisor. And hardware interrupts was the secret for doing that. So when you started up the computer, you'd, you'd have the supervisor, sort of a, a, an early form of an operating system, which would, which would initialize the hardware interrupt on the, on the so-called counter timer or you know, a, a periodic interrupt, wh which occurred very often, but, but not too often. You know, several, t typically several hundred times a second, something like that. Maybe a thousand in, in later faster machines. But, it, but initially, you, know, um, you were basically slicing up time based on these interrupts. And every time the timer expired or the AC line crossed through zero volts, like 100 or 120 times a second, that would generate an interrupt that would give control back to the supervisor. It would look to see how much time had gone by and decide if the same program should keep executing or maybe if it was time to give somebody else a chance. And so, essentially, all of the programs which were running at once, sort of, as, as we know, computers don't actually run things, well, actually, they, they, they do later on. When you have multi-core, they actually are running more than one thing at once, which we'll get to in a second. But back then, they were just, they were time slicing. They were giving, often in a round-robin fashion, that is program one, then program two, then program three, then program four, then program five, then back to program one, they would, this supervisor would get control and then hand control back to the next successive program. Meanwhile, each of those five programs had essentially been interrupted. So execution would start on the program and after this period of time, this clock interrupt would occur, yanking control away from that program, so putting it in a sort of an interrupted state, which was fine. It would just sort of patiently sit there until the supervisor decided it was time for it to get some more, another time slice, to get some more slice. And so the supervisor would essentially return from that, from that interrupting event back to the program having restored the state of the machine the way the program had, had, had left it, and then it would continue executing just like nothing had ever happened. So, so this was sort of the first notion of there being a sort of a, a nascent operating system, the supervisor, that would, that would start up programs and the supervisor was able to keep track of t the passage of time by these periodic interrupts, which had the power, thanks to the hardware architecture, 
of yanking control away from anything going on at any time. Now, later on, programmers said, okay, well, I've got a program here, and it's nice to be able to have other programs running at the same time, but I'd like my own one program to be able to do multiple things at once. And what was, what was invented was the notion of a thread. The idea being that a traditional, original, sort of older style program would, could only be inside of itself, could only be doing one thing at a time. That is, you'd have, you, you, you call it a single threaded program, which is to just sort of say a non-threaded program. That is, it's only doing one thing at a time. But what we realized was you could, the same abstraction, which allowed us to apparently be running five programs at a time, could also give you the ability to apparently be actually in many places of a single program at a time, each one of those places being a thread. And so essentially it's, it's like timesharing or multitasking, which is, you know, timesharing, but within a single program. Thus, that's called multi-threading. And so what happens is when the program starts, it always starts with just one thread. That is, you know, it starts at the beginning of the program. And so it, it goes along until it decides that it wants to sort of branch out. It wants to be able to, for example, maybe it wants to be in charge of sending characters out to a device while it's doing something else, much like I was talking about before. And so it's literally able to spawn a thread that is like, like, like it's able to the, the, within the program, it's able to say, okay, create another thread and start executing it at this location. So because in a traditional single core system, the, the CPU actually only has a single program counter, which can only be in one location at a time, we, we know that we're not actually executing multiple threads, or in this case, these two threads at the same time. But once again, we have a, a timer as part of the hardware, which is able to get control back to the supervisor. And so, whereas before the supervisor was dividing all time up into, for example, five main programs, now it's more granular. Now it's dividing time up, not only among whatever programs may be running, but within those programs, among whatever threads the pro the each individual program may have created. So this is a, a tremendous benefit and a very powerful thing that modern programs are able to do because it sort of gives the individual programmer within an individual application the ability to set different things running and 
and let them sort of handle themselves. You have to be careful. I mean, and this is where some of the skill of programming comes in because we're, you know, as we do this, we're escalating complexity in some cases dramatically. For example, you you need to be careful about not having the threads collide with each other or not having multiple threads trying to do something that, that conflicts with each other because essentially the threads don't know. They have no awareness of when they're running and when they're not. Each thread sees itself as if it's running all the time when in fact it's that, that time is being chopped up among all the threads in the system you could have many different threads in different processes, that is to say different programs, and from sort of a thread-centric view, they just sort of see that they're running along, executing, unaware that chunks of time are missing during which time other threads in the system have the actual access to the processor and they're running, moving forward. So... um. Intel at one point said, you know, um, this is all well and good, but what if we actually supported multiple threads in the hardware? What if instead of this threading being a complete abstraction, what if we actually created hardware that could do sort of more things at once. And so this was this was before multi-core, but this was what they called hyper-threading. And the idea was that, that you could have multiple program counters and, and share a lot of the resources of the processor, but for example, have multiple sets of registers and and the idea would be that that so long as the programmers set these things up right you could actually be doing multiple things at once that is the hardware could and so we went for a couple years like that and then of course intel went to the next stage and gave us multiple cores where now you actually had full full processors which again were were had had their own program counters they had their own registers they had own, all their own resources they shared memory so that was the common thing that they shared as well as as the hardware you know like uh, the display and so forth that is that they had common access to the system's io and also to its memory resources but otherwise they were independent. Well, by the time that this happened, operating system technology had had evolved substantially. I mean, you know, we already had windows and multiple tasking and, and multiple threads. And what was so cool about this notion first of hyper-threading and then of this multiple core was that you'll notice that our operating system software and the applications we were running, nothing changed. That is, we didn't have to have different applications. We didn't have to have a dramatically different operating system. That is, 
there was this sort of this notion of multi-core support. But from the user standpoint, our systems just got faster. Things worked better. Well, and the reason that happened was that we had already before that time, there was this mature concept of multiple processes and multiple threads. And the operating system was was given the task of deciding what the computer was actually doing at any one instant. And the operating system was jumping the program counter all over the place, giving all these different threads a chance to run until the next hardware interrupt yanked control back to the operating system where it would decide what to do. And it was the the so-called scheduler. The operating system scheduler is, I mean, it alone, the optimal strategy for that is the subject of, you know, doctoral theses and, and whole books on computer science, how to maximally schedule all of these things that are that are going on simultaneously in the computer. You know, do you want to do you want to allow some things to run with high priority? Do you want some things to run in the background? Do you, you know, h- how do you manage the simultaneous demand across all of this? But but what was so interesting was that that the abstraction of all these threads um essentially running at the same time that is in a given program the threads were set up so they were they thought they were all going at once and individual programs in the operating system thought they were all going at once so when we added multiple cores they actually could be going at once and the way we got away with this was there was already the discipline in place about not having them conflict with each other. That is, there was already some inter-process containment so that processes couldn't stomp on each other's memory. And within a process, there was already inter-thread discipline to make sure that these threads that conceptually were all running at the same time behaved themselves and didn't mess with each other's business, essentially. So when we added hardware that actually was able to run multiple things at once, first through this hyper-threading that was sort of poor man's multi-core, and then real multiple core, well, everything just got faster. It scaled beautifully because everything we already had, the whole structure was oriented toward the simultaneity, which Initially, we were we were faking out, but later we were actually able to do it. So that's basically the multiverse of of contemporary computers, and and you know what we're all sitting in front of right now is all of that going on at once, all behaving itself for the most part. <laughs> um, when it doesn't, you know, things go definitely go sideways. But when everybody plays their part and and behaves themselves. You know, we end up with just an an incredibly powerful facility for computing. It's been fun watching Intel uh, slowly add these capabilities, as you say, with hyper-threading and multi-cores. And they also use something called QPI, Interprocess Communications, now in the uh, new i3, 5, and 7 chips. They've really gotten very sophisticated about 
how to do this. You know, it's no it's no longer just time slicing. They're really they're really getting sharp about it, and it does make a difference. And I think the reason that they put so much effort into it is they they realized that they couldn't put more meg, more megahertz out, that they were getting right. all sorts of problems past three gigahertz, and they, so they backed off and they said, well. We're not going to have a six gigahertz processor. How else can we improve speed? Multiple processors. Well, and Leo, I mean, three gigahertz, three a lot. billion, <laughs> yeah. three billion cycles per second. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. You know, the first IBM PC was 4.77 megahertz. Right. And we were all thinking, whoa, this puppy just, it, it cooks. I remember I mean, very well uh, when we first started doing TV uh, for Ziff Davis in the early, I guess it was 92, 93, 94, and uh, Bill McCrone came in. He brought in the new Pentium, and it was 90 megahertz. <laughs> megahertz. And we, th- and we were all saying, oh, it's so fast. And I remember using it saying, wow, it feels slippery. It's so fast. It's moving around. And that was 90 megahertz. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are now th- you know, more than 30 times faster. You know, in just clock cycles, and then you then you double the core or quadruple the core. Intel's got six core processors coming out. Each is hyper-threaded. That's twelve processes, twelve threads at a time. Well, and what's really interesting too is that while the processor performance has been able to scale generation after generation after generation, main memory stalled essentially. Right. The, 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 the so-called DRAM, dynamic random access memory, its technology turned out to be stubbornly non-scalable. So, and, and it's just due to the way, just due to the nature of the way DRAM operates, there are, you know, we hit the, we hit essentially the, the physical fundamental limits of its speed much sooner than we did processors and so what what's been done is we've made it wider that is so that one memory access is fetching many more bits sort of in width at a time and then we've also had we've gotten very sophisticated sophisticated with caching because one of the one of the things that the early researchers noticed was that computers would sort of go over here in memory for a while and and work in some loops and do some work in a certain region and then you know they'd go over somewhere else for a while and and do some work in a different region you know i mean it wasn't like they were like the actual execution was randomly occurring throughout all of memory there was a regional there there was a regionality to it and so what they realized was that if you if you had a a much smaller but much faster memory, a so-called cache, you know, um, a, a a a static memory that was able to be made to be kept at the same speed as like the registers of the computer, where they could run in a single cycle. What they realized was, well, you might have to to wait essentially to to read what's in main memory into the cache to, to get it into the cache. And that would take a while. You would, the, the processor would, would essentially, it might be stalled while you were painfully slowly pulling main memory into the cache. 
But once you got the cache loaded, then the processor could run again at full speed, full sort of local speed, as long as there were, as, as the term is, a, lot, a high percentage of cache hits as opposed to misses, as opposed to misses. So that, so that while the processor was doing things locally, staying there, it was able to execute again at full speed. And so that's, and, and they, they extended this notion not to just a single level of cache, but to then two layer, l- levels of cache, having a very high speed, but smaller, and then a semi-high speed, but larger, and then like finally main memory, where we just can't make it any faster, unfortunately. Yeah, in fact, we know L2 cache, that level 2 cache, uh, the amount of that makes a huge difference in overall processor speed. Yes, and, and when people are selecting processors, it, it's also expensive because there's, right. there's, it takes up chip real estate and it takes up power. And so one of, one of the things that you know, purchasers do is they decide, oh, yeah, you know, how much speed do I really want? Um, because you know, the chips with a larger level 2 cache, the L2 cache, they're going to be more pricey. Right. It's a great subject. Uh, you know, at some point, maybe, I don't know if there's enough for a whole show, but I'd love to talk or hear you talk about cash, the, the, the concepts behind caching. Because uh, we see cash all over computing. We used to see hard drive caches. Uh, uh, you know, there's browser caches. And, of course, there are these processor-level caches. And it's all the same idea, I would guess. It's absolutely. It's, it's very similar. Um, and there's a lot could- of computer science into how you do this, right? Oh, well, yes. And there's also right back versus right through, right. you know, do, do you, do you, and there's this notion of, of the cache being dirty. That is the, the processor also wants to be able to write into the cache, not only just not, not, uh, it's not only that data from main memory is pulled into the cache, but the processor may be modifying the cache. Right. So the question is, do you start writing back to main memory when the cache is changed or do you wait until you're you're you you have like a different flush event that is for example the cache may be changed a whole bunch of times in which case you wouldn't want to be writing it back all the time but then you've got a problem for example with multiple cores multiple processors because they need to have a coherent view of what's in memory and if one processor's got modified memory in its local cache on its chip, then the other processor can't see into that. It's seeing main memory. And so it gets very tricky. Hmm. Love uh. to hear more about that someday. <laughs> very tricksy. By the way, Steve, you've crossed the 1,000 follower count on both Gibson Research and uh, Agile Synapse on wow. Twitter. So a thousand people now are waiting for your first tweet, <laughs> Agile Synapse. I will try not to disappoint anyone. <laughs> and I'm sure with next when we come back after this podcast comes out, there'll be several thousand more. Cool. Who knows? Who knows? Cool. Let's well, see how high we I will, get. It. I will. I will use the Gibson Research Twitter account to let people know what's going on with Gibson Research and Agile Synapse to let people know what's going on with me. I don't know why anyone cares, but we do. We'll, we'll see how that goes. We care, Steve. We really do. Uh, Steve Gibson is the man in charge at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Go there for, uh, of course, this show, both 64 and 16 kilobit versions for people with uh, low bandwidth. There's also transcripts there, show notes and more. And GRC.com is the home of Shields Up. 
Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Wismo, all those free things Steve does, perfect paper passwords, and that one one thing that he charges you for, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. If you don't have it yet and you have hard drives, you need it. Spinrite from GRC.com. Steve, we'll see you next week. We'll do a Q&A oh, yes. and uh, answer any questions. So do have uh, our listeners, uh, GRC.com slash feedback. We'll take you to a web form where you can uh, tell me what's on your mind. Uh, I will read them and we'll choose a bunch of good ones and talk about them next week. And they're reminding me in the chat room that you might want to turn off email notifications of new followers on Twitter because you just got 2,000 emails. <laughs> Congratulations. The good news is I did understand that much, at least. <laughs> Steve's no fool. <laughs> I had that turned off before I breathed word of it to Leo. You know who, you know who we really hurt with that was uh, the, the wonderful woman in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, Lisa Tickled Pink, who we just randomly chose on Twitter as uh, somebody that everybody should follow, and she got something like 50,000. I don't know, some huge number of emails almost instantly. And uh, <laughs> I felt bad. She thought she broke the internet. She thought she did something wrong. <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Security now. Security now.